Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This podcast is the product of both Steve and I valuing the insights that are derived from academic experiments and research, and wanting to share these with the greater fundraising community. That being said, the format of the academic article is such that these insights are often hidden in plain sight. That is, the work has been done to find something very helpful or meaningful for our profession. However, it is packaged in perhaps the most dense and uninteresting way, just as a custom, basically, of academic research, and not through any fault to the researchers or authors at all. So, this podcast is here to solve that perceived problem. Steve and I, along with our guests, read the articles, and then we have a conversation around the findings that is hopefully more engaging and entertaining than standard journal article flow. We're also very fortunate every episode to be joined by these subject matter experts to help us with unpacking the articles and lending additional thoughts from direct experience. So at this point, let's jump right into this episode with Steve and I first introducing ourselves. My name is Michael Paulus, and I am a data scientist at the University of Southern California. And my name is Steve Grimes. I am the Director of Development Strategy and Analytics at Chaz and Lincoln Center here in New York. Uh, Brenna, do you want to introduce yourself first? All right. My name is Brenna, and I'm currently a plan giving consultant. Uh, previously, I was the Director of Gift Planning at the University of South Carolina. Thank you, Brenna. And Cindy, could you care to tell us a little bit about yourself as well in your current position? Thank you, Mike. I'm Cynthia DeLeo. I'm Director of Planned Giving at Environmental Defense Fund uh, since September of 2016. All right. Thank you both for being here with us today. Um, Looking forward to this discussion. So last month, we discussed the implications of using the donor's identity in the solicitation process. And we had some feedback from a listener that I would like to share with everyone before we move on to this month's articles. Uh, so without further ado, here is Tammy Pearson, the Director of Development Operations at Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, uh, with her thoughts. So, uh, Tammy, uh, you know, I really appreciated you listening to the last episode. Uh, you know, w- what were your thoughts on it? Hey, Steve, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so I thought that the last episode was really great because the conversation, it really, it really, the, the hour-long format, the almost hour-long format really gave the conversation a way to wander around quite a bit. And so I think there was something in it for everybody. Um, I was really interested, uh, I'm especially interested actually in the ethics around how we engage donors uh, based on what we know about them and how much we give to them and what we give to them with the expectation that it will spur them to give back to the organization. So I found the conversation around the crisis of consciousness Mm -hmm. that you and Pedro kind of seem to agree on regarding how we market to people based on their economic identity. Uh, I found that really interesting. Um, I happen to agree with both of you in that using that one characteristic to segment the messaging could, could really be doing the organization and donor a disservice and sort of downplay the importance of the organization's mission in exchange for an appeal to the donor's ego and their money. Um, and we, we know that people are so much more nuanced than that. But I also agreed with Mike. Um, it's marketing. And if it's done well, it works. And it brings in large money for the organizations that we care about. It really does have an impact. It really does help connect people to the organization. So 
it, I know it feels kind of gross sometimes to 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 a lot of us um, who are opposed to feeling that fundraising is akin to sales. Right, right. Um, but I think we should examine what makes it feel so gross to us because it does often have such a positive impact in terms of fundraising. Um, but I find it really to be super complicated in my own mind. And I, I'm always waffling on, on issues like this. Um, towards the end of the episode, you, Steve, talked about expressing, <clears throat> you talked about some, some of your thoughts on fundraisers who, quote, speak the language of the donors and the majority of the organization's community and how that might limit the organization's reach to different types of donors who may not be as much part of the community around that organization already. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you asked if you were thinking too deeply about it. And I say, no, <laughs> um, of course not. I, and so like, what, what, um, and so that's really in regards to all that was discussed in how we do our work. We should be thoughtful in our work. We should think deeply about our work. Um, and the fact that we're having these conversations at all and that this podcast exists is really a testament to how much and how positively our field is progressing. So I think it's, I think it's great. I'm, I really For this episode, we have two articles to explore. The first article is Bequest Giving, Revisiting Donor Motivation with Dimensional Qualitative Research. It was written by Adrian Sargent and Jen Shang from Indiana University and appeared in the journal Psychology and Marketing from October of 2011. As the title states, this article is examining donor motives. To collect the data, 10 focus groups were conducted. Participants were asked to consider the factors that led them to support the organizations that they support. After, the transcripts from the conversations were examined to pull out themes. The article mentions that the approach used here is specifically dimensional qualitative research. That is, the first level theme the researchers explored had to do with the relationship between the donor and the organization. However, while exploring the results, the concept of self-identification was discovered to be another significant aspect, for example, and so points are taken from ideas shared around this theme as well. In this way, the common responses that emerge are organized around these different themes or dimensions. The top-level dimension for the study is generic individual motives for giving to an organization. So these were found to be prestige, accessing personal benefit, reciprocation, warm glow, and identification. Prestige and personal benefit had to do with how they were perceived and treated by the organization. Reciprocity had to do with giving back to an organization that provided something valuable to them. Identifying with the organization was expressed through either a sense of community or value alignment or both. Finally, warm glow or just feeling good about the gift was mentioned, which is markedly um, different than guilt alleviation, which is also cited as a motivator, kind of a contrasting motivator, Um, forgiving in some other studies. One dimensional level deeper involved exploring bequest-specific motives, 
These were found to be a lack of family need, the need to manage estate tax, a desire to live on, and a desire to make a difference. In terms of family need, some didn't have children, while others felt their heirs would not be the best stewards of their estates. Reducing estate tax was a factor just in donors wanting money to go where they wanted it to go instead of to the government. Lastly, respondents mentioned having their legacy live on after they were gone, as well as being able to make a larger larger gift than they would have been able to do during their lifetime, thus having a bigger impact. Organizational factors were also found, including performance, professionalism, communications quality, and the quality of the interpersonal relationship with the fundraiser. Respondents needed to know that an organization was high-performing by adding value in line with their mission and goals. Professionalism was seen as important, especially since this is a very big decision for a donor to make. Respondents also expressed that they appreciated being communicated with in a way that made them feel very informed and valued. And of course, having a good relationship with the fundraiser was also a factor. So this paper concludes with a very concise and organized table listing all of these motives along with ideas for how an organization can communicate effectively to each. Thanks, Mike. Uh, So I had the pleasure of reading Health, Wealth, and Charitable Estate Planning, a Longitudinal Examination of the Testamentary Charitable Giving Plans by Russell James III, who was over at the University of Georgia at the time this article was published back in 2009. James was interested in giving some uh, quantitative evidence behind the motivators for planned gifts. Key for him was looking at what the general motivators of planned gifts are at a given point in time and over time. So in other words, he was interested in analyzing uh, this sort of thing cross-sectionally and longitudinally. So taking the 2006 health and retirement study and specifically looking at individuals who answered whether they had a will, trust, or both, uh, he completed a cross-sectional and longitudinal analysis on the significant characteristics that were connected to their decision of giving a planned gift. Um, For the uninitiated, the Health and Retirement Study is a panel study of Americans older than uh, 50 years of age, uh, uh, and the study now has about 26,000 participants um, through its existence. The cool part of this study is that it follows those participants through their lifetime, uh, recording their answers to questions over their lifetime. For example, a person may come into their cohort and be asked what their income is and position, and then ask that question 10 years from that, that, um, from that date, where likely a different answer would be given. The benefit of these types of studies is that it allows the researcher to track the differences of a participant over time to see if there are internal or external factors that influence a change. These types of studies have the additional benefit over a cross-sectional study like our first study um, because while a donor's motivation to give to an organization might be one thing when they're 50, uh, it might be something different when they're 65. He found that far and away the most important factor both cross-sectionally and longitudinally was the existence of children or grandchildren where having the presence of children uh, drops the likelihood that someone will leave a planned gift pretty dramatically. Um, grandchildren also drop the likelihood, uh, but not to the degree that you would find with direct offspring. The next factor across time frames uh, was how much the donor cared for the organization with the estate size, um, monetary factors, and um, expe- expected 
time of death, rounding out to other significant fact factors. Um, you know, I, I found both these articles pretty interesting because it was eye-opening to see that financial factors were not the main influences that increase someone's uh, increase the likelihood someone left a planned gift. Uh, for me, at least, uh, this is because there are so much conversations uh, that I see around planned gifts that tend to really focus on the financial aspects of what it means to leave such a gift. You know, I guess, however, much of that is because of the tax law intricacies around planned gifts. Uh, but it was interesting to see that when actually tested, really what people care about is is um, whether or not they have something to leave uh, for their loved ones um, and, um, you know, whether or not they care about the organization. And Brenna, what were your thoughts generally on both of those articles? Yeah, so I really liked both of them. Probably my favorite was the Sergeant and Shang one because I loved the table that they created that shows all of the different motives that are sort of stereotypical for, you know, people that do plan gifts. Right, and then that was sort well of done. how you Yeah, and how you approach it. Like I that was great to come out of that article. I also really enjoyed the, I think it's Russell James was the other one. That one was really great too. It sort of talked about the complexities of sort of the generational wealth and you have sort of the baby boomers coming up and are they as philanthropic? Are they not? Um, and sort of what what their motiv motives are as well. So I thought both of them were great and very much applied to sort of day-to-day -day gift planning. So um, Cindy, uh, what were your initial thoughts? I uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading both articles. I thought the Sergeant and Shang article was terrific in that it identified and uh, the data seemed to support a lot of the day-to-day -day decisions that we make in targeting uh, specific cohorts of donors in our work at EDF. The Russell James article certainly was terrific in terms of uh, identifying the percentages and uh, statistics regarding donors who actually include a charitable contribution in their estate plans. So I'm very excited to talk about both. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I, I think we got some really great articles that uh, – you know, really unpack some of the specifics um, of plan giving, but, you know, kept it relatively approachable. Um, you know, I will say with uh, in my development experience has been limited with plan giving. So for me, a lot of this was <clears throat> an education, really. Um, and, you know, one of those things that um, kind of came up in both articles was uh, the estate ta tax or just the, the tax benefits of what it means to give a gift. You know, and I know we talked a little bit about this before in preparation um, of this podcast. And uh, Cindy, you had brought up some changes uh, most recently to the estate tax. You know, if you could kind of give a quick overview of what that actually is. And, you know, and, and if you could also uh, give some insight as to um where you see uh, the tax benefits as a motivator uh, towards giving a plan gift. I think both articles kind of talked about those tax benefits in, in different ways in terms of what's a motivator or just a, and a, and like a kind of a cherry on top sort of thing. So, um, yeah, what were the changes with the estate tax and, and, and where do you see it, you know, playing a role in terms of getting one to leave a plan gift? Uh, you know, uh, there have been some changes to the estate tax since both of these articles were published. 
we are no longer in the old days of the three million or five million dollar estate tax uh, exemptions. That has been increased incredibly to an eleven point four million dollar exemption in twenty nineteen for estate tax, and for a married couple. That means $22.8 million are exempted from estate tax. And the impact that that has on uh, planned gifts is that it's really a fraction of a percentage of our uh, constituency that are really affected by estate tax. Uh, The average donor doesn't have to worry about that necessarily. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other taxes uh, that are important to consider. Uh, the first one that comes to mind certainly is income tax as to the beneficiary designation for an IRA account uh, can, can be mm-hmm. a big consideration. I say all of that, but I uh, should probably underscore it with, in my experience, the primary motivator for donors is less based on taxes and more based on just supporting the mission of the organization. Interesting. Interesting. So I, you know, Brennan, have you seen this also? I know Cindy, you work in a cause-based organization and I like, I know you've had tons of experience with this before. Um, but Brenna, I know, you know, a lot of your experience also is based in um, higher ed. You know, is, mm-hmm. is, you know, have you seen any differences there in terms of like what it means? Because, again, for me, from coming from the outside in, um, I've always at least thought of the tax benefits as the reason why most people would look to go ahead and give some sort of plan gift. Um, and again, you know, again, these articles really was an education for me to see that, you know, most people don't really uh you know, don't really care. Or, or again, like as, as Cindy says, it doesn't really apply to them. So what have you seen um, in your experience? Brent? Yeah, I think the majority probably, you know, that are going to do a planned gift, it's, you know, they care about what the mission is, or they identify deeply at the university. I mean, they were Gamecocks, and they wanted to make sure that they left their money there. Um, mm. And you're always going to run into like with the IRA, so that there's a few exceptions like the Roth IRA. Um, but they fall outside your estate. And so I always say, particularly for people that have kids, um, I say, if leave stuff to your kids, it's in your estate. And then you can, if you want to do something for the university or whatever organization, make sure it's, you know, an asset that falls outside of your estate, like an IRA, and we don't have to pay taxes on it. So it still is, once I sort of open the door a little bit, and they start thinking about it, the tax benefit does become a motivator, because I, you know, they don't, they want their money to go to something to good use. Um, The other thing too, that I've run into a couple of times, just because yes, the estate tax stuff was recently changed, and it was up, you know, like Cindy was talking about, I mean, it's very high. But we're also in a very politically volatile time. I mean, Mm. depending on what happens, I mean, that could go back down. Um, You really never know. So that's kind of where I always say estate taxes really, you know, it only affects sort of really top tier people at the moment. Um, But depending on what politics happen, that could change. So, you know, Mike, I know you have uh, uh, a couple of things that you wanted to actually ask, but, you know, I kind of wanted to to quickly just touch on the politics aspect of this real quick, because 
you know, now that you're bringing that up, do either of you see um, a dip or or have seen a dip or an increase during like the main election years? You know, when I say main or I should say federal election years for, for president, knowing that, you know, uh, tax tax laws may change within the administration. Have you seen, say, you know, like so now we're going into the t- 2020 um, election, do you see a fall off, you know, in terms of people giving a plan gifts because they kind of waiting and seeing or do is there a bump? Um, and, and this question is for either of you, um, if, if like you've seen this, uh, that, that phenomenon. Um, I definitely have, particularly with 2019, because the tax laws did change. And a lot of my donors, there was some trepidation. Um, ultimately, I would say, I think all of them ended up doing the gifts that I was talking to, to them about. However, they were worried about how all the new tax laws were going to affect them. And I talked to quite a few CPAs um, that I work with on a regular basis, and they're not 100% sure how it's going to actually shake out for everybody as well. Uh, because you know, there's going to be a lot of people taking that standard deduction instead of doing the itemized. Uh, and it's very complicated beyond that, too. But it definitely there's trepidation. People want to talk about it and they want you to make sure that you know what you're talking about. So, I mean, as much as I can, I try to stay up on all the tax laws, but I mean, it could be really difficult. Right. It almost seems as if you have to almost be a CPA yourself just to kind of be able to wrap your head around all of the intricacies of what it means for, for, for the changes for this sort of thing. I'm, Cynthia, I'm sure, you know, this is something that you've also seen in your in your experiences, not necessarily the, the, the dip or the lull um, or the increase that I'm talking about in, in the election years, but the, you know, the changes that you get from uh, administration, uh, administration. Exactly. I, I think one of the biggest changes and, and the most dramatic is based on the tax changes that were put into effect in 2018 and the different treatment now for itemized deductions. A lot of our donors uh, have opted to make their annual contributions or their uh, regular major gifts through an IRA qualified distribution, which is when you, if you're seven day and a half or over, you know that you can uh, move money from your IRA directly to a qualified charity and uh, not have to claim that income. And uh, it uh, has, has made a big impact, I know, at Environmental Defense Fund. In fact, the uh, Chronicle of Philanthropy is researching this currently and have an article coming out in, in the next few months. Interesting. Mike? Yeah, so um, if everyone's okay with that, I think we might pivot just a bit because I think this, this really covers a lot of what was covered in the Sargent article, which is more the, the qualitative article about the motivators. Um, and I also want to make sure we touch on the the other article, the James article, which had more to do with um, kind of the quantitative characteristics of what makes a planned giving donor. So to that effect, um, I kind of want to start the question, and again, I can open this up to, to both of you, um, with just saying that, you know, that, that article really gets into a lot of these different characteristics that they feel are very predictive of what makes a good planned gift donor. Some of them, I think, were things we would expect, um, not having children, um, ha- having a certain amount of wealth, obviously, there were they had touched on having a certain amount of education, a certain amount of health, um, and these type of factors as well. So I was kind of wanted to see if, in the article what resonated with you. What did you 
kind of feel like you already knew or those were already things that you used? And then kind of what were some things maybe that they missed or some things you maybe you disagreed with? So kind of to pick up on some of those characteristics from that article. So for the Russell James article, um, I thought it did a really nice job, particularly kind of talking about some of the nuances. And you're right, Mike, a lot of it's things that you would know to look for with gift planning, like not having any offspring. Um, I will say that is the number one predictor I think that they gave. And for me, I, I find those people that had sort of, you know, no heirs, have it be, they probably gave the biggest gifts, but I still was able to get, um, you know, plan gifts from people that did have children or grandchildren. Um, those gifts, they just didn't happen to be quite as big. So that was a little bit of a nuance that I thought that they missed there um, on that one. But uh, I think that James certainly touches on all of the indicators. Um, I will say that my experience at Environmental Defense Fund has been that education and capacity for giving, basically a wealth indicator, are perhaps two of the best indicators for us uh, because I think that points to the part of the, your constituency that are most likely to have the highest education levels and, uh, and be predisposed to having an estate plan in the first place. You know, I, I, right in the very beginning uh, of his intro, James points out that over 90% of the general population doesn't even have uh, an estate plan, so that we're we're really already looking at only ten percent, and of that ten percent, it's about five percent who include a charitable contribution in their estate plan. So the the funnel starts to narrow very quickly, and I think it's important that you're talking to the right people at that end of the funnel. This is actually an interesting point. So like that education part that uh, uh, people kind of need to already come to the table, um, understanding what a bequest gift is, what the benefits are generally, right. You don't have to know all the specifics, but they, they, they kind of, they're, they're kind of already there with you. So you don't necessarily need to spend that time educating them on like this whole other option of what it means to give gifts. So, you know, this then immediately has me thinking about because we're always trying to find ways to increase our revenue, right? Um, whether it is finding the big, the big fish out there in terms of you know the big d- donation or just doing it by numbers. But with planned gifts, because of those intricacies, because of all those moving pieces, right? You know what? What if at all? You know is going to be useful towards increasing plan gifts within a department, right? So I, I have to imagine that that education piece is, is absolutely necessary. But, you know, when it comes down to all the other demands of your day, um, the demands of the job, uh, is it worth it to be spending the time educating your donors, your prospects, your constituents on all these options out there when, you know, some many of them may not necessarily care for it, or that education may not necessarily be, you know, um, impactful. Uh, Brenna, thoughts? 
Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, and something in terms of being a gift planner that we run up against all the time, because you have, you know, we need most of the time you need cash in the door. You, right. you know, they want to do programs. They want to do scholarships, all of these things that are so important. Um, but the donor's biggest gift, most likely, if they're a pretty solid donor to whatever institution, their biggest gift is going to be their planned gift. And if you don't put time into it, yeah, I know at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like, well, you know, that person, you know, we probably won't get that gift for another 20, 30 years. You never really know when you're going to get it. And it's hard when you don't see that immediate impact all the time. Um, sometimes you do, but not always. Uh but but you are leaving all that money on the table of you know some of your best donors that you have, and it's going to be their biggest gift. It really is. I think it's important uh, when you're Cindy? structuring your marketing program for plan giving that you allow for a ramp up, uh, an educational ramp up for your prospects. Uh, we segment our marketing by age band so that for the 40 and 50 year olds we're starting to uh, educate them about all of the options that are available in planned giving uh, and some of those may benefit a 40 or a 50 year old right then and there uh, otherwise it's a process of making sure that by the time they turn 60 or 70, they've already got that knowledge. And uh, then we're talking about not if, but how to structure that planned gift. Yeah, well, Cindy touched on one of the things I was just about to ask. I was about to ask about age and kind of when, you know, along those lines of keeping your constituency educated when you really start. Um, but something goes right along those lines is the idea of of what Brenda was bringing up, and that is strategically uh, within your organization, is there a thought that if you get a planned gift too early, it's going to maybe take away from some of the giving that a donor would have done during their lifetime? Is that something that you think about strategically with the rest of your team, Brenda? Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely a possibility. And I have had that happen once where they said, this is all I'm giving and I'm done, <laughs> mm, <laughs> which wow. no, one, no one wants to hear that, right? <laughs> but... But at the end of the day, I usually, when I talk to them, I usually say, you know, I try to get them to endow what they annually give. So that way, after they're gone, their annual gift is still there. If we've been able to kind of endow it, that way we can move. We're not at a deficit um, and we're not, and we are always trying to get new donors and everything like that. But it, yeah, I mean, it definitely, it happens and it's, and it's a concern and it, and it really more in gift planning than any other area everything is so personalized and it really just depends on the person and you have to be able to read them well and be able to tell, you know, is this going to affect their annual giving? If so, it's a conversation you need to have with them. Well, you know, uh, and Cindy, I want to hear your thoughts on this also. So, um, is the articles bring up, you know, one of the reasons why individuals want to give is, um, because they felt that the organization has done so much for us, right? Like they've, they've done so much for them for themselves, right? Like and like or they they themselves uh, feel like the organization speaks to their identity. Um, leaving the organization speaking to the identity piece to the side for a bit, um, because I I feel as if when an individual gives to a cause based organization, you know clearly they're speaking to a part of their identity. 
Um, but do you see any sort of situation, again, being in a cause-based um, institution, do you see any sort of situation where people kind of come out of the blue and say, hey, this organization has done so much for this, this thing that I care about, you know, and I've been keeping my eye on you. And, you know, here now is me talking about wanting to give a planned gift. Like, I, I guess it's, it's it, for me, at least, it, there's a bit of mysticism there for me, it, how someone would just come out of the blue and say, you know, I really care about this organization. It's done something for me. It's done something that's something I care about. Um, mm-hmm. And now I just want to leave you all this stuff that is worth money. Well, uh, um, but, you know, so like, like, how does that happen? How does that take place? Uh, which, which is the cohort that we work with at Environmental Defense Fund, have been around for for generations, and we are fortunate to work with these people who have this this deeply uh, ingrained uh, feeling about taking care of the planet. And it's very important to them to carry that on. Uh, I think that the Sergeant and Shang article uh, addresses this issue beautifully. And in fact, it, it alludes to some of the research that's been done that once an individual includes an organization in their estate plans, they care very deeply about the health and welfare of that organization. Once you're in the will, they want to make sure that you continue to be fiscally sound and operating professionally and very effectively. So, Brenna, you know, to, towards that end, then, so, you know, that cause is, is attached to that person's identity. Um, one of the, uh, I can't remember which article it, it brought this up and kind of jogged my mind towards it, that, you know, a, a, there may be a situation where that person in a higher ed institution, for example, you know, has gotten so much because of the higher ed institution. They got a whole bunch of scholarships. They got a really mm-hmm. cool internship, you know, and that started them on their career and, you know, they took off. Right. And uh, then they would come back. Right. You know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, 20, 30 years after. And so, like, you know, the school has done so much for me. You know, I want to be able to give back. Right. And like those people are gold. But yeah. You, you know, how do you then like get the person who really did um, get something from the school, right? You know, their career took off, mm-hmm. and you want to now re-engage them again, twenty, thirty, sometimes forty years after, right? And say like, you know, you know, you're you're where you are today because of X university, you know, and it'd be great if you. You know, um, Pat, you know, gave a, a gift, a legacy gift towards that, so that we, you know, students just like yourself, you know, got that same opportunity. Like, how does, how do you keep, how do you make a a, a cold connection go warm? I guess is is essentially what I'm asking. Here. Yeah, I think you have to. You first of all, you hope that they had a good experience. Sometimes they don't, and if they don't, that makes your job a little tougher. It doesn't mean that you're not capable of getting a gift out of them. I think when you're talking about re-engaging somebody, a lot of times, particularly with higher education um, institutions, I mean, it is about the students. And at the end of the day, I always go back to very simple, um, just why would someone want to give to this institution? And it's usually about the students. And so what I do is I like to get them in front of students, students that care, students that are either on scholarship or are just really dynamic. 
-hmm. And you can tell that like, you know, these kids are going to go far. And I think it really, it starts to remind that donor of, oh, you know what, it, it, it kind of brings it back. I also try to get them on campus. I think physically being there is a lot different than just, you know, yes, you have to call and talk to them on the phone. Like you have to get in front of them um, somehow. But getting them back to that physical place, there is a lot of, you know, memory is tied to that being physically there. So really any way that I can possibly engage them, I will, I will try it. I will, you know, and it just, again, it depends on the person. If they were a music person, we're going to go to a concert at the, you know, university together. Or if they really like football. I mean, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not good with the sports ball stuff, but some people are. <laughs> So guess what? We're going to a football game together. It just, you know, right, <laughs> it right. just, it just, it depends, and you have to really get to know them and really understand why they're giving, um, or if they haven't given, because that's the other part too. Where I've had plenty of people who have given absolutely nothing, and it is that what you were talking about, just out of the blue. They will call you up and you're like, where is this coming from? <laughs> um, what I found when that happens, it's usually something in their personal life that is sort of, um, you know, stemmed that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's either one of their parents has died and they didn't, you know, their parents didn't have a will or the probate process was really horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually kind of a negative experience that they've had. And they're like, I don't want that for myself or for my, you know, heirs or children. So that happens a lot. Um, when I get those ones that are out of the blue, usually it's some sort of big personal thing that has happened or they've been some sort of illness. A lot of times that happens a lot. So that's interesting. Mike, did you have anything else? Yeah. I just want to pick up on that actually, as far as, um, the engagement aspect of it, because, you know, as a data scientist, as I'm looking at these characteristics that are really predictive of a plan giving donor, I'm thinking a lot of these, there's some of them I can find in the database, or some of them I feel like I'm going to re- really rely on my, on my gift officers to kind of find a conversation. So mm-hmm. I'm really interested and really intrigued to know about what are some of your tactics you use when you sit down to engage a prospect in a conversation to try to kind of tease out some of these ideas that are going to you know end up being um, used as like trying to know whether or not they're going to be good um, good prospects for a plan. Uh, I, certainly, we can do all the research uh, that's available and and gather public information, but there is no substitute for going out and having a cup of coffee or uh, visiting with a donor and really getting to know what their family dynamic is, what their experience has been, what they care about most uh, in their engagement with the organization and finding a, a common ground to begin a discussion uh you know, that people just like them include EDF in their estate plans and have they considered that? And here are some of the possibilities that might be interesting. That's the kind of conversation you want to get to, but you can't do that until you really know your donor and know uh, some of those driving forces. But Brenna, before you answer that, and mm-hmm. and Mike, before you ask another question, because again, okay, because oh, 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 all of this is just really kind of just um, it's things I haven't really thought about. So, like, we know that, yeah, we we generally know that donors tend to kind of flock within the same you know uh, peer group, right? That if someone is super philanthropic, chances are their friends are going to be philanthropic either because they just are philanthropic or they're 
might be some pressure um, induced on the philanthropic philanthropic person to go like, look, you know, I'm, I, I'm supporting this cause. You know, I would love for you to do the same. You know, you're doing well for yourself. You know, you should also do it kind of thing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, Rana, if you have seen that at the plan giving level, because they're, you know, plan giving donors and either of you can, can go and correct me if I'm wrong with this, tend to be a mixed bag in the sense of wealth. Um, and even just philanthropy, right? You know, they just merely, really, maybe they really care about the cause. They really care about the institution. They they want to leave a legacy. Like they, they seem to just be a mixed bag of a bunch of reasons why they would be given a gift. So it isn't necessarily that the group, their peer groups, are philanthropic. It's just that they they're really motivated to do something, you know, before they pass on. Um, so like, do do you feel as if like relationship analysis might be something that might be useful for like that sort of uh, um, demographic that that sort of sort of segment or you know you know it really wouldn't be anything there in terms of like you know finding that person who's calling you out blue and then asking hey do you have have some friends you know (laughs) yeah no that actually um so i have used that before and we've done it in marketing pieces i've actually had um, someone called me up and she was a friend of someone that we did a story about and it was a great play and gift and everything. It was a great story. Um, and she called me up and she goes, so-and-so is my friend. She goes, I want to do what she did. Um, and at that moment, that was pretty early on in my career. And I thought to myself, I said, Oh, I said, I, I could do, I could use this. And so I usually, I always ask people. So sort of during the process of doing the gift or after it's done, I always say, how do you feel about sharing your story? Um, and I would say 90% of the time people are cool with it. You know, a will is a very personal thing. So not everyone wants to share that. And I completely understand, but I would, I I got very little pushback on it. And so I love doing stories about them. And then I ask, I said, do you think that there's anybody that would want to do this? Or a lot of times, you know, we have events and we'll put their names up. Um, if they want them, they don't have to have them up there. Um, but I've had people come up and they're like, I want my name up there and that kind of thing. So it does. And it's not, they're very, they're philanthropic and they want to do something, but you do have these circle of friends and it's kind of like, well, if one starts doing it, then the other one starts thinking about it. Now it could be three or four years down the road by the time they get to it, but it plants that seed a lot of times. That's what I have found. All right. So We've talked a lot about, and it's been really helpful to know what you do when you're in conversation and engaging these donors. Um, since a lot, our audience is also includes a lot of people who work in operations and in prospect research, um, I, could, I know they'll be curious to know this. So I'll ask on their behalf. What can what can we do? What can the operations staff give to you that's going to help you? Um, you know, help you feel like you're going out on a, on a visit with someone who's going to be a really promising prospect. What kind of what kind of information can we give to you when we're trying to provide a good pro- a good plan giving prospect? Yeah, for for me, it is really sometimes look at the smallest detail because sometimes, particularly with planned gifts, the smallest detail tends up and it, it ends up being the biggest part of why they're doing their gift. And so it might seem like, oh, they have you know this kind of dog or whatever. I mean, it could literally be the smallest detail, but I really want that visual profile. Like I want everything that you can possibly give me just because you never, 
more so you just you never know where they're sort of coming from or their motives. Um, and the the more holistic that view is, the more I can walk into that that relationship or that visit and can you know just meet them where they're at. That's the part that's the most helpful because you never really, with plan giving, you never really know exactly where they're at. And sometimes like plan gifts can take like 10 years. Um, You hope it doesn't take that long. So it, (laughs) if you give me the, as much information and I'll literally take any information. Sergeant and Shane gave us a great outline of data points to focus on. uh, But that we, in addition to identifying those data points, we can never underestimate the value of the personal connection with the donor, because that's where we really get to their family relationships, their feelings about uh, what their goals are for their family, for their heirs, and for their charity. And uh, so I, I think the data is so important to guide us to that point, but uh, we still need to take that extra step to talk to our donors. Absolutely. Yeah. We work better and we're working a team, right? Mm-hmm. So um, again, ladies, uh, you know, thank you so much. This has been like uh, a few weeks in, in, in the making here in terms of us uh, getting together and finally having a, a conversation. And um, thank you, you know, for all the insight. Again, for me, uh, speak for myself that this was an education. Um, I'm, I'm actually a little bit more demystified on the process uh, because of the conversation in, in the two articles. Uh, so again, thank you. Thank you. This has been so much fun. So that is this week's episode. Um, again, I would love to thank the guests uh, for coming along and, and sharing their insight. Um, we are hard at work on our next episode. If you have any thoughts about this particular episode and would like to kind of join us as a guest to, to kind of share those to- thoughts or just share th- your thoughts uh, regardless, um, you can go ahead and email us at dataandthedonor at gmail. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.